Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The latest on debt ceiling negotiations and a new looming deadline. As we head into the Memorial Day weekend, can the country avoid a default? Special counsel John Durham is expected to testify before a House committee next month. Find out what he'll be discussing. Former President Trump will be joining Fox News for his second town hall next week. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis remains optimistic after experiencing an audio crash during his campaign launch on Twitter. But we'll find out more. Over in Texas, embattled Attorney General Ken Paxton is facing a possible impeachment. This comes after a Republican-led committee accused him of bribery, retaliation and obstruction. DNA testing at the southern border is set to prevent human trafficking, but reports say it's soon ending. Lawmakers are demanding answers from the Biden administration. And retail giant Target under fire for embracing LGBT messaging and its products for kids. The company's shares dropped to its lowest levels in a year today. A new looming deadline. The Treasury today revises their estimate for when the government could run out of money. Joining us now live is White House correspondent Iris Tao. Iris, tell us more about the new X date and what's the latest in debt ceiling negotiations? Good evening, Steph. So as we are running out of time to raise the nation's debt ceiling, the Treasury Department today said that June 5th would be the new date on which the government could run out of cash to pay its bills. And that date was originally set to be June 1st. And of course, it's not that big of a relief, but four days could make a big difference given the very tight timeline right now. So today, both the White House and the Republican House Speaker pointed to more progress. Let's take a listen. I thought we made progress last night. Um, we got to make more progress now. We're making progress, and our goal is to make sure that we get a deal because default is unacceptable. So as we know, the core of the negotiations line the fact that Republicans want spending cuts in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. And a potential deal has reportedly emerged. So sources are telling media outlets that it would involve raising the debt ceiling for two years while capping federal spending. But it would also increase spending on defense and veterans programs, as Republicans are insisting. But again, nothing is final just yet. And we are hearing Republicans refusing to drop their demand for strengthening work requirements for certain social benefit programs. Watch. I do not think it's right that you borrow money from China to pay people to stay home that are able-bodied with no dependence on the couch. So it seems like there are aspects to this where the two sides are still far apart. How much time do we have? Not much. So many lawmakers have already left Washington for the Memorial Day weekend coming up. And President Biden is also spending part of his weekend in Camp David and in Delaware. And to actually raise the debt ceiling, we know that both the House and the Senate will need to come together to actually pass legislation. So it really remains to be seen how fast things can unfold over the next 10 days that we now have. All right. Thank you, Iris. Thank you, Steph. Special counsel John Durham is set to appear before the House Judiciary Committee next month for a testimony. This is after he released the much-anticipated report on the FBI's Trump-Russia investigation. 
An unnamed source told Fox News that the hearing will take place June 21st. Durham will also hold a closed-door briefing with the House Intelligence Committee the day before. Durham released his 300-page report earlier this month on the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation into the 2016 Trump campaign. Durham concluded that the FBI began their investigation based on an inadequate evidence and that the Bureau failed to uphold their mission of strict fidelity to the law during the probe. And on the election front, former President Trump is set to participate in a second town hall hosted by Fox News. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flipped the script after an audio crash during his campaign launch on Twitter. NTD's Sam Wong has more. Former President Trump will be joining Fox News next week for a second town hall. The event is set to be aired on June 1st at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and will be moderated by talk show host Sean Hannity. Hannity will take questions from the audience and speak about a range of topics related to the 2024 presidential race. But relations between Fox and the former president have soared in recent months, as Trump continuously criticizes the network for its positive coverage of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Trump attended a town hall hosted by CNN earlier this month, marking his first appearance on the network since before he became president in 2016. Meanwhile, the governor of the Sunshine State isn't letting some technical difficulties ruin his mood. On Wednesday, DeSantis launched his presidential bid during an online conversation with Twitter CEO Elon Musk, but the server crashed as millions tuned in. Despite the tech glitch, the governor took pride in it. His campaign began to sell t-shirts the very next day carrying slogans saying, DeSantis breaks system, the internet, the deep state, corporate media, woke indoctrination. Help us break Washington next. After the incident, his team said that the campaign raised over $8 million within a day. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York. Following the tech glitch, Twitter's chief engineer announced that he's calling it quits from the platform without specifying a reason. And in Texas, a House committee yesterday voted unanimously to file articles of impeachment against Attorney General Ken Paxton. This comes a day after lawmakers heard lengthy testimony against him. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. A Republican-led Texas House committee voted Thursday to oust the state's attorney general from office. The chair moves that the committee adopt the articles of impeachment against Warren Kenneth Paxton, attorney general of the state of Texas. The 20 articles include accusations of bribery, retaliating against whistleblowers, and obstruction of justice. They also accuse him of a years-long pattern of alleged misconduct and lawbreaking. The committee announced an investigation Tuesday into Paxton's earlier request for $3.3 million to settle whistleblower lawsuits filed by four former top aides. They accused him of wrongful firing and retaliation. The aides had claimed he used his office to help a Texas real estate developer and Paxton campaign donor. Impeachment requires a two-thirds vote of the state's 150-member House chamber, which holds an 86-64 to Republican majority. Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick would preside over a potential impeachment case. He explained to WFAA how that could play out. So the process is much like uh, US, the U.S. government. Um, when there was an impeachment, it came to the, to the Senate, the U.S. Senate. So here, if, there, uh, if that happens, it comes to the Texas Senate, uh, and there will be a trial conducted. And uh, the senators, all 31 senators, will uh, have a vote. and. Uh, and we'll set the rules for that trial as we go forward, and, uh, and we'll, see what, uh, we'll see how that develops. 
Paxton was re-elected last year for a third term despite accusations against him. He has denied all wrongdoing. The investigative committee is led by three Republicans, but the chairman of the Texas Republican Party said Democrats are to blame. Chairman Matt Rinaldi said in a statement posted on social media that Democrat Speaker Dade Phelan is partly responsible. He said the sham impeachment is the result of the Phelan leadership team empowering Democrats, allowing them to hold leadership positions and letting them control the agenda. So far, Governor Greg Abbott hasn't commented on the recommendation. The Associated Press reports that the House could vote on it as early as Friday. The House's legislative session is scheduled to conclude on Monday. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And to update, the Republican-led Texas House of Representatives is set to make a historic Saturday vote tomorrow to possibly impeach Paxton and suspend him from office. And looking to the southern border, the Biden administration is reportedly ending DNA testing there. Experts say this will increase child trafficking. Lawmakers from both the House and the Senate are now demanding answers. NTD's Arian Pazdar brings you the details. Senators Mark Rubio, Tom Cotton and others wrote to Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas saying we demand that CBP continue to conduct familial DNA testing at the U.S. southern border. Reports say that Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, is ending the practice. CBP implemented DNA testing in 2019 during the Trump administration. You have to be a biological parent. You have to be able to prove you're a biological parent. Todd Bensman is a senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. He says it's not allowed for immigrants to enter the U.S. with children they're not related to. In a letter to the CBP commissioner, House Republicans said, Recent studies have found that nearly 60% of unaccompanied minors crossing the border are forced into child pornography and drug trafficking by the cartels. In 2019, CBP contracted Bodhi Technologies for the testing. However, that contract is set to expire next week. What's your take on the end of the contract and how do you think could this affect immigration? So this is very significant as a, an anti-fraud measure. The outcome of this will be children being trafficked, uh, sexually abused, murdered, labor trafficked. Bensman says children used to be separated from the adults they came with if DNA testing found that they're not related to each other. According to him, that's why the Biden administration has slowly been getting rid of the practice. In order to not have a politically uh, a terrible look, an optic at the border. I reached out to CBP for comment on those allegations, but didn't immediately hear back. Lawmakers are now demanding CBP hand over documents of communications regarding the end of DNA testing. They also want the CBP commissioner to attend a briefing to answer questions, such as what is CBP's justification for allowing its contract with Bodhi Technologies to expire, which officials made the decision not to renew the contract, and more. They want to hold the briefing before June 1st. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. And in culture and consumer news, Target continues to endure a backlash over its LGBT products for children. A conservative investment fund is now boycotting the retailer. The American Conservative Values, which is a conservative investment fund, announced Thursday that they have sold their shares in Target. The organization said, quote, Target Corp's ever-increasing pandering to the woke LGBT agenda has backfired. They added that this has significantly damaged their brand across the political spectrum. 
A report by Fox News Digital on Friday also discovered that Target has been partnering with an LGBT organization. Called GLSEN, the organization calls for integrating gender ideology into all classes and keeping kids' gender transitions a secret from parents. The Fox report discovered that Target has donated at least $2.1 million to GLSEN. Target has been facing calls for boycott after introducing a range of LGBT-themed children's products. Target has removed the collection from all of its U.S. stores and its website following the backlash. Target shares dropped to $139 a share on Friday, the lowest in a year. That's a decline of roughly 15 percent compared to the past year. But the retail giant is not alone in embracing the LGBT agenda. Similar items that have prompted calls of boycott can also be found at Walmart, Kohl's, Macy's, Old Navy, The Gap, Apple, and many more. Coming up, the State Department is warning about threats from Chinese hackers. A state-backed hacking group has the potential to disrupt critical U.S. infrastructure. New inflation data released today. Prices are rising faster than expected. More in just a moment here on NTD News. Department is warning of recent activity by a Chinese state-backed cyber group. Here are the details. People's Republic of China. The State Department on Thursday said it's aware of recent activity by a Chinese state-backed cyber group. Researchers say the group has been conducting a cyber espionage campaign against military and government targets in the U.S. The U.S. intelligence community assesses that China almost certainly is capable of launching cyber attacks that could disrupt critical infrastructure services within the United States, including against oil and gas pipelines and rail systems. Uh, it's vital for government, uh, uh, network defenders, and the public to stay vigilant. Dubbed Volt Typhoon, the cyber group recently triggered a multi-nation alert. In a report on Wednesday, Microsoft said the group could disrupt critical communications infrastructure between the U.S. and Asia in the event of a crisis. Microsoft also says Volt Typhoon recently targeted telecommunications systems in the U.S. territory of Guam. It's home to major U.S. military bases and could play a critical role in the event of a conflict in the Indo-Pacific region. The National Security Agency said there was no doubt Volt Typhoon was putting itself in position to carry out disruptive attacks. And here to discuss the department's announcement and more is Casey Fleming, CEO of Black Ops Partners Corporation. I spoke with him earlier today. Casey, tensions are rising with China, considering the U.S.'s warning of a Chinese state-sponsored cyber espionage operation. How concerned should we be? Well, the answer is very concerned, but it's very surprising that the United States is finally waking up to what's been going on from the CCP and specifically the PLA for many, many years. Um, so what we're seeing is not new. What we're seeing is a new awareness of how serious it is and to the depth that it's occurring. And it may be hard to figure out exactly how deep it is. Microsoft has said, though it's notified customers, compromised customers, it, the hacking group found a way to make its actions look like normal activity. So it seems like we may not actually know how far this goes. What are your thoughts on that? 
That's 100%. Assume that they've been doing this for years and covering their tracks and making it look like normal operations. Uh, that's typically what happens in cyber. As you're in cyber, you start being very, you start by being very rude in your attempts, and then over time, you're getting very experienced to cover your tracks and so on. So this is again, this has been going on for years. Uh, uh, you know, many companies, including our, our own, have reported cyber operations coming from China, and namely the Chinese Communist Party and their army side, their military side, called the PLA. Um, so that's really who's doing the attacking and laying the Trojan horses in the software and uh, and so on. And it's not just in infrastructure, it's in our corporate networks, it's it's every, in our government networks, military. So it's, it's across the board, but they've been honing that technique for years. One thing I will note, we taught them how to do it. In our US universities, we taught them internet security in, uh, with uh, Chinese national students that go back and work for the PLA in the, in the People's Liberation Army. So um, we have ourselves to blame, and we're, it's gonna take a little, bit, uh, a little bit of work to climb ourselves out of it. What can be done now? Uh, total government awareness uh, and alignment, stop the fragmentation in our federal government and our military. Um, it's uh, All this is underneath the guise or the strategy called unrestricted warfare. That's war with no rules. And it's asymmetric in the way that they attack the United States and the free world. And we have to have a, a like response. Next, I'd like to look at China's new ambassador is calling on Chinese people in the US to serve the motherland. How do you see that? It's the truth is it's actual Chinese communism against liberty and freedom. And so they're now requesting and therefore requiring Chinese Americans and those Chinese students and Chinese uh, operatives that have been in the United States to support the motherland in in uh, driving Chinese communism through the United States and the free world. So that's what you're actually seeing with this new ambassador. He's calling on people uh, from a uh, a, a communist regime uh, and Chinese communism to, to rise to the country and support their country. Uh, theft of intellectual property, more infiltration, more subversion, and supporting that communist call. Uh, and the communism, you have to understand, they teach their people and their young children to hate the United States. And the United States is evil and prepare for the great struggle with the United States because that's the only thing standing in, in the way of uh, their Chinese dream. So it's, uh, it's been wound up for many, many years and this is, uh, it's in full execution mode today. Considering that the US now is aware of all of these tactics from China, what do you think we should do in response to that call? Anything? Well, it, we've been calling for it for years. And back in 2020, with the national counterintelligence uh, strategy, the, the counterintelligence executive said, we, we have to uh, look at this as a whole of nation response to a whole of nation attack. And that means government, private sector, everybody needs to be working together on a single pointed strategy and, and complete alignment to go and, re and respond back to this unrestricted warfare. So it requires a whole of nation response and no more of this fragmentation from the private sector and within the private sector 
and no more fragmentation within our government and our military and so on. We're all on one team, and it takes one team to combat this threat. And remember, it's all plausible deniability coming from the Chinese Communist Party. But there's no there's no surprise. They're you know they're engineering and driving fentanyl through the United States through the Mexican drug cartels, even the pill machines to to uh, to create the pills. Uh, xylazine is a, a a a new drug that's on the streets of America. That's even it's. 100 times worse than fentanyl. And those are all to weaken the United States and to weaken those bonds that hold us together. So we all need to stay together as Americans. We do have a common enemy. They've identified themselves as our enemy, and that's the Chinese Communist Party. Great to hear from you. Casey Fleming, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. More on China. Two agents for the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, are facing charges for a bribery scheme. The Justice Department said the agents tried to repress Falun Gong in the U.S. John Chen and Lin Feng were arrested earlier today in California. The DOJ said Chen and Feng tried to bribe a purported IRS agent with $5,000 in order to revoke the tax-exempt status of an organization run by some Falun Gong practitioners. They did so at the request of the CCP. But the IRS agent turned out to be an undercover law enforcement agent. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a spiritual practice based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. The CCP has been conducting a persecution campaign against the practice since 1999. Chen and Fang face multiple charges that could land them years in jail, including acting as an unregistered foreign agent and bribing a public official. The DOJ says they will continue to counter the CCP's efforts to intimidate or silence people in the U.S. And Moderna is setting up shop in China. The vaccine maker saying today it's looking for opportunities in the world's second largest economy. That's as Pfizer and BioNTech have made cuts in supplying their COVID vaccine to Europe. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. Stocks rallying behind the news, with Moderna's shares rising 2% in U.S. pre-market trading. The biotech firm registered as a legal entity in China this week. The company had no presence in mainland China before this. It opened an office in Hong Kong last year as part of an Asia expansion. Moderna has said that it was keen to sell its mRNA vaccine to China. But so far, Beijing has insisted on using only Chinese-made COVID-19 vaccines. This comes amid warnings of a second wave expected to peak this June. A top epidemiologist predicting over 60 million will catch the infection per week when the wave hits. Lead scientists at China's National Health Commission, Zhong Nanshan, warning infections could hit 40 million per week by the end of this May, adding the new wave is driven by the new XBB variant of Omicron. This has raised fears of more lockdowns. That's because Beijing implemented draconian lockdown measures after the CCP virus, which causes COVID-19, hit the country. The lockdowns sent China's economy reeling. Factories halted production, businesses closed doors, and residents were barred from leaving their homes. Now looking at the economy. New inflation data is out today. Prices increased more than expected last month. Should consumers be worried? Let's take a look. Inflation rose above expectations last month. That's according to a key inflation measure released Friday by the Bureau of Economic Analysis. 
The personal consumption expenditure price index increased at a faster pace in April compared to March. On a year-over-year -year basis, the PCE price index also ticked up higher than before. This shows that inflation pressures remain high. Should consumers be concerned about this? Here's senior analyst at FX Street, Joseph Trevisani. Having a up and down by small amounts in a declining or even a rising um, inflation is not at all unusual. It's in the past year, the PCE has ticked up twice, one-tenth of a percent two times. It's a little bit more this time, 0.2%. Nonetheless, it's not a real issue. Data today also showed that consumers are still spending. Consumer spending accelerated at its fastest rate in nearly two years in the first quarter. Personal spending was up 0.8%. Um, they expected 0.4%. I think you're seeing two things here. One, everybody still has jobs, and the job market is still quite strong, and employment, the rate of employment is very low. And I think, so that's one reason consumers are spending. They have jobs. Consumer spending is also boosting the economy's growth prospects for the second quarter. Sticky inflation and resilient consumer spending could have the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates higher for some time. So if you don't get the reduction in the economy, the Fed would have no reason, I think, to cut rates. If the economy does not go into recession, we don't get a slowdown, that means that the economy is tolerating the rate uh, structure as it is now. In terms of further rate hikes, Fed officials generally agreed that the need for hikes had become less certain, but financial markets currently are split on whether there's going to be a rate increase at the June 14th Fed meeting. Main Street creates two out of every three jobs in the U.S., but higher interest rates have put serious pressure on small businesses. What kind of pressure? To find out more, NTD spoke with Brent Garrett, small business expert and author of Swirling the Drain, Why Small Businesses Fail and How to Stop the Leaks. Brent Garrett, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. What happens to small businesses when interest rates go up? Well, interest rates for small businesses have nearly doubled in the last 12 months, but it's, it's really um, a case where small business owners are being pinched on, on two or three different items. Um, inflation um, for the last 12 to 18 months um, has been on an increase. It's put a pressure on normal raw goods pricing and transportation pricing combined with sluggish labor supply. Um, it, it's really put a cramp on profits, um, being able to stay out ahead of pricing, um, staggering layoffs um, going on in the marketplace where People are, are being laid off. Um, that happened mainly in the third and fourth quarter last year. Continues now in March. Um, there were 340,000 layoffs just in March from small businesses. The real issue, you brought it up, was um, the Fed continues to try and cool the jets on the economy to try and um, uh, help inflation flatten out. What that's doing in result is putting a lot of pressure on small businesses for being able to afford working capital and cash for standard small business loans and operating lines of credit. Brent, you've been in business since you were 24 years old. You've probably seen a lot of ups and downs, all kinds of crazy circumstances. What advice do you have for small businesses in this current interest rate environment? 
Yeah, let's let's narrow that down into two categories. One is if you're thinking to get into business, and then we'll talk about if you own an existing business, been in business for two to five years. So let's say you're um, trying to get into business and start a small business in the next six to 18 months. Timing is key. Um, it's a great time to maybe not enter the marketplace, but do a little more strategic planning. The second um, fundamental piece is securing your capital funding right now. Um, uh, small businesses, in fact, I was talking to a small business banker, um, they are just tightening up on um, even, even allowing a loan to happen. Make sure you have the ability to weather a couple of business storms. Make sure you have plenty of cash. Plan your growth. Um, stay lean and mean right now in this kind of time frame. So, um, so if you're entering the business, be very cautious. If you're an existing business, um, hopefully you've already started doing these things. We did it in our business probably nine months ago. Reduce company debt if possible. We don't want to pay that extra interest rate on debt that we have or things that are getting renewed. Evaluate your team. Um, put them in A, B, C categories. Your C players might be time for them to maybe seek opportunities outside the firm. Is there anything the Biden administration could be doing differently to alleviate some of this pressure on small businesses? Well, you know, it's a head scratcher. It's been for me. I would say, number one, um, the administration needs to let the uh, free market do what it does, and that is um, the strong survive. Um, but also, um, don't cramp or crimp those, those existing businesses and make it harder for them to seek um, uh, capital funding to just bridge the gap between their payables and receivables. Because um, once they're out of cash, they're dead. And um, so one of the very significant ways that they could do that is to um, free up the SBA to for existing businesses that have strong financial statements that need capital funding to give them some kind of eased treatment on interest rates. Brent Garrett, small business expert and author of Swirling the Drain, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Coming up, terrified passengers held on to their seats after an emergency exit door was opened during a flight. And climate activists sit across access roads, locking arms and legs to form a human barricade in Paris. Find out what people from around the world think about their tactics after the break. What would you do if you were on a flight when the emergency door suddenly opened? NTD's Jason Perry has the story about how that just happened to 200 people. Have you ever been on a flight and wondered what would happen if someone opened the emergency door? Well, this video shows exactly that. Passengers were terrified as high-speed winds blew throughout the cabin. A man who was on board the Asiana Airlines plane is accused of opening the emergency door just a few minutes before the plane was scheduled to land. According to an airline official, the man was sitting in an emergency seat, and while the aircraft was about 700 feet above ground, he opened the door. A passenger on that flight said the man looked as if he was trying to exit the plane. He must have been trying to get off. Suddenly, he tried to get off and the crew went, help, help. So about 10 passengers went and pulled him back. 
The exit at the farthest back was open and we flew with that open for three to five minutes and then landed. 200 people were on board that flight that was coming from Jeju Island to Daegu, South Korea. It appears an escape slide was deployed but was ripped away from the plane. The children were so shocked. Yes, they were so shocked. I was sitting at the far back, so I didn't know. But when I got off, the kids expressed dizziness. Twelve people suffered minor injuries from hyperventilation, and nine of them, all teenagers, were sent to hospitals. As for the man who allegedly opened the emergency door, he was detained by several law enforcement officers after the plane landed. And local police said the man confessed to opening the door, but wouldn't say why he did it. South Korean officials said in a statement that if the man is convicted of violating aviation law, he could face up to 10 years in prison. Meanwhile, a transport ministry official told Reuters that authorities were looking into whether Asiana Airlines had followed protocols to manage emergency exits. Asiana Airlines explained to CNN how the doors work during flight. When the aircraft is high up in the air, it is impossible to open the door. But when the altitude is low and close to landing, the door can be opened. A professor at a South Korean university said someone from the flight staff should have stopped the passenger. And he said it seems difficult for the airline to get away from any potential responsibility. Jason Perry, NCD News. Several hundred climate activists gathered outside Total Energy's annual general meeting in Paris today. Here's more from NTD's Sue Biamba. Several hundred climate activists in Paris sought to block access to Total Energy's annual shareholders meeting on Friday. French ride police used pepper spray to stop the protesters. Outside the venue, activists sat across roads, locking arms and legs to block the way to the building. French police then escorted shareholders and others attending the meeting. Investors are expected to vote on a climate resolution proposed by activist shareholders. But Total Energies is urging investors to approve its own internal climate plan, focused on more modest emissions cuts. On Thursday, a climate activist group in London also protested against British gas projects, throwing paint powder over a garden at the Chelsea Flower Show. And in Italy, activists on Sunday poured a black liquid into Rome's iconic Trevi Fountain. The group accused their government of continuing to invest in fuels that they say caused the recent flood in north-central Italy. In the past, the group has hurled paint at Milan's famed La Scala Opera House, thrown food over the glass protecting famous paintings, and sprayed orange paint on the facade of the Italian Senate. I asked tourists and locals in New York what they think. It's basically vandalism in some regards. I'm not really fond of this type of protests. For me, it's an act of violence. Well, to destroy something is wrong. Go about it in a peaceful way. For me, it's like individual, like, right? We have to make changes ourselves. But I think also it should start within the institutions, let's say, that we work for. You know, it has to be the culture change. I would probably write letters. I would see what I could do in my home, what I could do in my community. I would do the best. I'm not sure recycling is always the way. It's more reusing than recycling. But I would see what there was to do within my own community. 
And staying on Paris, but looking worldwide, there's a rise of mental issues in teenagers and children across the developed world. At a recent meeting in the French capital, psychologists and psychiatrists traced this silent pandemic back to social distancing and other pandemic measures. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has that story. The trend is alarming. The French agency in charge of public health found that cases of depression and suicidal thoughts have sharply increased in teenagers in early 2022, compared with the previous year. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, has also found that in early 2021, across the developed world, mental health issues among this age group have more than doubled since the onset of the COVID pandemic. Psychologist Amandine Lafargue says her phone hasn't stopped ringing since 2020. We're seeing new symptoms in patients and an explosion in the number of appointments. Really, we're talking about a 600% increase in appointments in child psychiatry and an uptick in suicide attempts, something that's new for us, which serves as a warning for us. The OECD also found that the frequency of symptoms of anxiety and depression in the United States, France and Belgium was up to 80% higher among young people than the general population. The occurrence of suicides among children is something that's exceptional. And yet, in the last two years, there has been a surge in suicides. There has been an increase in phobias in children, anxiety disorders, and things like that. And we know that in the long run and in the medium run, it can lead to more serious pathologies like schizophrenia and other types of psychosis. She said the wearing of masks and social distancing had a strong impact on young children, on how they communicate and connect to others. Despite the end of the pandemic and the government's mandatory measures, mental health issues continue to go up. Some experts have described the rise of mental disorder in the young population as a silent pandemic. Lafargue says she observed many teenagers exhibit self-harming behavior while staying quiet about it. They act without even having shared their suffering. So it's not that we've all become bad psychologists. It's that now, as they no longer have any hope that things will change, or they can no longer imagine a positive future, there's a feeling of guilt. The Pew Research Center in a recent survey found that 4 in 10 U.S. parents said they're extremely or very worried about their children struggling with anxiety or depression. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And looking now at tech news, Elon Musk's brain implant company Neuralink said yesterday it had been given a green light from the FDA to kickstart its first clinical study in humans. It's a milestone for Neuralink after earlier struggles to gain approval. Here's that story. On at least four occasions since 2019, Musk has said his medical device company would begin human trials for brain implants to treat severe conditions such as paralysis and blindness. Yet the company only sought Food and Drug Administration approval in early 2022, and the agency rejected the application, sources linked to the company told Reuters in March. The sources said the FDA had pointed out several concerns to Neuralink that needed to be addressed before sanctioning human trials. 
They include the device's battery as well as safety issues surrounding its wires and the protection of brain tissue. Thursday's FDA approval comes as U.S. lawmakers are urging regulators to investigate the oversight of animal testing at Neuralink. The company has already been the subject of federal probes, including at least one linked to animal testing and treatment. In a tweet on Thursday, Neuralink said it was excited to share the news of the approval, but that it's not yet recruiting for a clinical trial. Over the years, Musk has publicly outlined an ambitious plan for Neuralink. He envisions its devices to cure a range of conditions from obesity, autism, depression, schizophrenia, to enabling web browsing and even telepathy. And that both disabled and healthy individuals would be swiftly getting surgical implants at local centers. Neuralink and the FDA did not immediately respond to a Reuters request for comment. Musk made headlines late last year when he said he'd be willing to put the brain implants in his children. Experts have told the Epic Times there could be ethical, safety, security, privacy, and even philosophical issues when it comes to Neuralink's goals of having healthy people interact directly with the technology via the mind. And coming up in the NBA playoffs, the Celtics are on a roll and getting closer to making history, yet Miami could finish them off with just one more win. NTD's Dave Martin takes a look at the series. And a musician takes classical music to a new venue outside. The pianist stopped in San Francisco on his tour to bring music to people's ears. Stay tuned for more here after the break. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update from a still-confident Miami Heat squad. That's right, Steph. The Heat have seen their 3-0 lead shrink down to 3-2 now after a pair of double-digit wins by the Boston Celtics. But that doesn't seem to be worrying Heat forward Jimmy Butler, who said their mistakes the past two games were easily correctable. Said the six-time All-Star, quote, like I always say, it's going to be all smiles and we are going to keep it very, very, very consistent knowing that we are going to win next game. That next game is Saturday night in Miami and for the Heat to finally put away the Celtics, this is their best chance. In the history of the NBA playoffs, every team who's ever held a 3-0 lead in a best of seven series, that's 150 previous times, has won it. On the other hand, should they lose, they'll be looking at a Game 7 on the road where just 36 of 147 road teams have emerged victorious. Well, that includes this year's Golden State Warriors, who survived Game 7 at Sacramento in the opening round. And in NFL news, the Arizona Cardinals have released wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins, according to a release by the team. The 30-year-old spent the last three seasons there after being traded from Houston. Hopkins, a three-time All-Pro selection, made five Pro Bowls in his career, though none the past two seasons. His injuries and his suspension slowed his production. In addition, the veteran wide receiver was set to count more than $30 million against the cap, the seventh highest number in the league. In his absence, the team will turn to Marquise Brown, who they traded for a year ago from Baltimore. 
And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, a bit of a slow night. No NBA or NHL playoffs, but we do have a full slate of baseball games featuring the New York Mets, who are off to a bit of a slow start. But they'll have eights Max Scherzer on the mound against the Colorado Rockies in the thin air of Denver. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And lastly, here's a new way to enjoy piano music outdoors. One musician is touring around the U.S. to perform in the open air. Audiences and NTD enjoyed his latest stop in San Francisco. This is not your average music concert. Hunter Noak, a pianist who plays classical music, took it outdoors to the Botanical Gardens in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. It's part of his outdoor concert series called In a Landscape. So I started In a Landscape about eight years ago, and it's really a combination of the two things that I love most, being outdoors and classical music. Noak, from Portland, Oregon, has traveled to many places to play outdoors. It's not his first time playing in the San Francisco Bay Area. Despite the challenges, he still loves the outdoor environment. Audience members say it's peaceful and relaxing. I think it's a really great way to unwind and just reconnect with nature, especially living in the city and not being around a lot of nature. I think it's super relaxing and you can kind of just take a second to breathe and just reflect. Nowak also invited audience members to lie down on the stage under the piano to listen to the sound and feel the vibrations. I think what Hunter is doing in his philosophy is not only bringing music to the people um, in a broader audience and making it a venue uh, that's accessible to everybody and that really incorporates nature. I definitely want to do this again. I know um, he travels all over. My cousins actually saw him in Yosemite, which is awesome. So that's why we heard about it. But yeah, I definitely would come back and do this again. It's been a really great experience. Audience members say they hope more people support the arts and people like Noak, who presents them to the public in such a unique way. And so I hope people feel inspired by nature. I hope people feel inspired by this music and um, just feel calm and hopeful and and maybe even even daydream or or wander around and just have have some t time and space to to imagine. He has 45 upcoming concerts around the West, including in Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Utah, Wyoming, and Washington this summer. And as we head into the long weekend, be sure to tune in for our live coverage of the 2023 National Memorial Day Parade in Washington, D.C. This coming Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on NTD. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.